festival was over and the boys were off and corn fall. The cabaret was quiet except for the drilling in the one hall. The curfew had been lifted and the gambling wheel shut down. Anyone with any sense had already left town. He was standing in the corner looking like the Jacobites. Back there the girl and five cars stood by the stairs. If they had two queens, she was hoping for a third to match a pair. Outside the streets were filling out the windows up and wide. A gentle breeze was blowing, you didn't feel it from inside. So they called another bed and drew up the jack of arms. Ah! Am I on? I'm on. Alright, great. I'm on. Fantastic. This is rare. Usually it's, lately it's been kind of annoying. Uh, hey everybody. Yeah, uh, so I was at a uh, antique store the other day and I found this little lacquer box uh, that I didn't really recognize. I got a decent deal for it. Went online, found out more, and apparently there's some sort of uh, puzzle that you solve with it. And if you make it into a certain shape, uh, well, you, uh, you see sights that uh, you would not otherwise see, I guess. Uh, so today, I thought on stream, you and I were going to solve it together. Let's go. No, of course. That's a joke for anyone who uh, enjoyed Hellraiser. Uh, and that's also, of course, a, a puckish reference to the gentleman who tried to solve the tried to take the LSATs uh, on Twitch live. I don't care anything about who he is or anything about it. I don't know or care. Just the act of doing that to me, as someone who streams on Twitch semi-professionally, mind-blowing. Absolutely mind-blowing. The confidence. I mean, it's the perfect double-edged sword because at the one end, this is a confidence that really, you know, could build an empire. But at the same time, a idiocy <laughs> that undergirds the uh, confidence that guarantees that any effort, other than, you know, getting people to watch you dick around on the computer, is going to come for nothing. But wow, I can't imagine doing something like that. Just the thought of live having thousands of people see you just like no, not know what you're talking about, fail miserably, God, it's terrifying. I mean, I will not lie when I say that that is the thing that sort of drives me like the the the, uh, the closest thing I have to a uh, a neurotic association, I guess, with uh, with the streaming is just you know not falling off the beam in terms of intelligibility in such a way that I lose people because you know if 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 it's not making sense to anybody else, then maybe it's not. I mean, maybe it doesn't make sense, you know, in a greater sense. I can't have that. So the idea of somebody just going, yeah, I'll I'll take this uh, thing, I'll take this law test. It's logic. I'm good at logic. Amazing. Amazing. It's damn near... Uh, it's, it's damn beyond everything, Ed Tom. And uh, it really... It tells me a lot about the type of people that advance in the internet uh, take sphere, the internet personality sphere. Is you essentially have to have a part of your brain missing that, recognizing your, that recognizes your own intellectual... Uh, uh, in limitations. And it poses a challenge to anybody who wants to think on the internet or even express themselves on the internet is how are you going to keep yourself grounded? Uh, by the way, guys and gals, uh, it came for the Republic of Which It Stands, the first book in a my uh, planned reading festival to prepare for doing something uh, with the concept of an unassassinated Lincoln. I'm going to start reading this, and I thought it would be fun, just like as a project for myself and for anybody who wants to follow along, to do a little mini book club where I'll just kind of talk about what, what I read that week. So next Wednesday, uh, and I'll put this on Twitter and stuff, I'll probably read the first three, three chapters of this and talk about them. Not very long, probably. I'm not going to do, like, the whole show. Uh, but, you know, I'll just probably do, like, a ten-minute thing at some point. I did. I bought the book. I bought it. 
What if Yoda was six foot tall and smoked weed? Oh, right. The book is The Republic for Which It Stands by Richard White. I first heard about Richard White, honestly, uh, at least this book. I mean, I, he, he's written some other good ones. I, I first read this book, first heard of this book when he was interviewed on Patrick Wyman's podcast, Tides of History, which is very good. And uh, I, I trust Patrick a lot. He sounded really good in the interview, so we're going to start there. It's a very solid book, literally. I could probably kill someone with it. Oh, is Chris in the chat? Cool. I love it when Chris is in the chat. Especially since he can, t he can address some of your audio concerns if you have them. At least the ones about translating like uh, files and shit. And yes, he is a train guy. He wrote another book called Railroaded about the Transcontinental Railroad, which, and the and the whole like creation of railroad, uh, which of course you know, is a perfect subject if you're trying to understand the capital formation in the in the years after the Civil War, because as I've said, uh, the Civil War was the catalyst for of capital creation, a capital concentration rather, uh, in America that created sort of the dynamo that led us to an industrial capitalism uh, on a grand scale, on a, on a competitive worldwide scale. And in the aftermath of the war, the thing that took the place of waging war uh, was building, uh, building a rail infrastructure. And the way we did it was we just gave a shit ton of land to a bunch of private companies and had them uh, speculate their asses off across the continent. Uh, while just grinding men into hamburger uh, while building it. So if you're talking about any kind of, you know, what what, ha what would, what if history of America where we don't get civil war, we don't get our failed reconstruction and our you know, robber baron uh, capture by, of our governing, in governing institutions, one big thing that would be different would be the way that we built the fucking railroads. I mean, honestly, up to and including the question of how, how you know, how intense our exploitation of uh, of native lands would be. Anyway, getting ahead of myself. Uh, didn't talk. Didn't Lincoln talk about wage slaves and stuff? Well, yeah, he did. I mean, that was a common abolitionist argument, and it was one of the things that appealed to working class and uh, small-holding Northerners was uh, the idea that if you uh, allowed them to, it, that there is a, a, an essential, um, you know, coercion at the heart of wage labor and slavery, uh, and that, you know, if, if the South wins, they will impose a greater degree of coercion. Now the South would rejoin by saying, "Well, actually, wage slavery is inferior uh, to slavery." There is a, uh, a Southerner named uh, Fitzhugh who wrote a number of books uh, where he made the argument that if you, you're going to always have two classes of people, the smarter and the less smart, the smarter ones tell the dumber ones what to do, and therefore they will be in a subordinate position. Now, what should that be? The, the slave model has a reciprocal relationship built into it. It says, I, you, I, you owe me your labor, but I also, I also provide you with basic, uh, um, uh, basic survival uh, uh, fodder. Like I feed you, I give you a place to sleep, I give you a, st a, a stable way to reproduce yourself, even if everything else is up for grabs and up at my discretion. Whereas wage slavery, you're saying, yeah, you guys are going to work for me. If you don't, you'll starve. And if you do, I will give you this money for you to go find your own food and shelter. Well, fuck. These are the dumb people, remember? These are the idiots. They're not going to be able to do that. They're going to fuck it up. They're going to start starving. <clears throat> so what? And their lives will be, over time, worse. Their poverty will be greater. Their misery will be greater than the slaves will be. And other Southerners hated when Fitzhugh talked about this, and his books were not that popular among 
advocates of slavery who were trying to, you know, keep the North acquiescing to the existence of slavery because they didn't. If, if too many Northerners heard that that's what the South thought, they would make the conclusion, oh, well then eventually they're going to turn us into slaves. And they were right to think that. Fitzhugh was the guy who was taking all of the conceptions that undergird slave society to their logical conclusions. Not separating, not stopping at the arbitrary border of something like race, which the smarter even then knew wasn't a real thing. Or not as real as like the the, the people who were trying to convince themselves that, like, you were talking about different species. Uh, even though different species can't reproduce, at least not reproduce uh, fertile offspring. So right there, you have lost any even scientific basis as they understood science at the time. But that didn't stop them from trying because they wanted to create an arbitrary border of exploitation. Well, no, no, not white people. But Fitzhugh saw farther and said, no, white people too. Why not? Are they dumb? They can't, they're not in charge. They've never been in charge. They've always taken orders. Why is that gonna change? Why have them running underfoot and creating problems and making everything miserable for themselves and everyone else when they could be, be put into a submission, a, a mutually advantageous submission where they recognize their inferiority? And of course, the thing about Fitzhugh's logic, which is the logic, the undergirding logic, the social logic of every mechanism of, of class exploitation we've had since the dawn of civilization and the one undergirding capitalism and the one that will, over time, take over and become the sole relationship of production is that notion of there are those who take and there are those who give in some combination, do through some combination of a willingness to give which is their participation in a social order that they have invested psychologically in the maintenance of subculture, or this is, this is uh, when we describe this, we're describing superstructure, culture as such, and then there's bare uh, um, physical force, which undergirds the, uh, whatever the person in their, has in their head as they're giving to the person who takes. Now, what and that is the dialect, that dialectic relationship is the driver of class struggle between those two types of person, broadly construed. Now, as the society gets more complicated, uh, the relationship gets blurry. And you have things like slaves and serfs and fucking uh, indentured servants and levies and, and freeholders and, and uh, wage workers and managers and CEOs and, and, and civil servants and professionals where all of these things get enmeshed in one another and they get muddy. But over time, over time as capital accumulates at one end of this pole and capital and resources run out, the divide reemerges and asserts itself. Like I was I've talked a few times before about how uh, the, the guys who own 7-Eleven franchises have essentially been proletarianized by 7-Eleven uh, because they're able to, uh, because they run the whole, they, they're vulnerable because they uh, they need 7-Eleven to provide them with, you know, a franchise license and all the materials that they sell. And they can change that relationship basically uh, at will. And, and so a lot of these guys are making essentially minimum wage and working 80 hours a week while they're ostensibly owning this thing. That's because, and that process happens throughout every strata. And some people are able to negotiate a trans phase transition, like some small, some like medium-sized manufacturer or small business person who is about to get crushed is able to like buy, uh, buy stock somewhere or get a job within the structure. One way or another, they're being alienated from their capital. Everyone is gonna be alienated from their capital or have capital accumulate to them in classes. And those classes now, according to the ideology of the state and all that, the, or the, and the ideology that undergirds these systems, like the one Fitzhugh was expressing, that comes down to intelligence. That, that comes down to some person, or, or like breeding, whatever the hell you want to call it. Superiority of culture, all of it boils down to a better brain. You have a better brain, so it's okay, it's, it's only natural that you should get this. Now, of course, that's absurd for a zillion reasons, but one of the most pro pro prominent ones is that even if you take the assumption for granted, the superiority that they are talking about is a very narrow 
set uh, of um, skills that all revolve around the process of extracting fucking surplus and hoarding it. Which, as a system breaks down, as uh, resources run out or as you know, uh, externalities within the biological system build up, uh, the system is incapable of correcting because it has um, selected in the form of reproducing the privilege of people who are already on top and who therefore give these special brains to their kids just by the virtue of giving them a, a social context to be acculturated into them, both social and intellectual. Uh, and it's going to eventually crash into the goddamn... I mean, it, it, it's 9-11 it's every day anyway, but eventually it won't even be sustainable on its own terms. And that's when you get the common ruin of the contending classes and both of them fucking smash into each other. Uh, the alternative to that is a structure where the boundaries, this arbitrary boundary of extractor and, 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 and um, extractee is abolished. And everybody is working and everybody else is enjoying surplus. Everybody is creating surplus. Everybody is enjoying it to the degree that they can because it is a, a, there is a social recognition of the existence of a social organism. That is the basis of Marxist for each according to his ability to each according to his needs, which so many libertarians are horrified by because they imagine, well, what if you did that now? It would be like they acclaim the tyranny of the lazy and the stupid. They'd just sit back because why wouldn't they? They're free riders. But all that logic, the free rider logic of libertarianism, rests on the idea that there is a fundamental alienated humanity making up this system. From each according to his abilities to each according to his needs, describes in the broadest sense the social reality, the flow of capital, or whatever, the, the flow of surplus, rather, the flow of surplus throughout uh, the, the, the social system is from ability to need. And everybody needs, so everybody's needs are met, everybody has ability of some kind or another, and it is the socialization of the process and the use of the technology that has accumulated through the process of capital accumulation of capitalism that is then applied to the world around us to allow for that, that organic flow of surplus within a social system to be um, generated. So that is why uh, there can never be any, uh, in my mind, quarter uh, to be given to uh, any desserts-based moral order, which all capitalist apologia must be at the end. Even, even, in your pre even liberals, even, honestly, a certain strands of market socialists. It's, it's an idea that there must be a... a is, there must be a system of reward for ability. And ability broadly construed as brain power. But in a socialist system, the reward is living in a socialist society. And that is why, you know, like, like I said, oh, free riders, what about lazy people who don't want to contribute? Why would they? Why would you want to? I mean, the number of slave owners who complained about how, how uh, including George Washington, the founder of this country, who is on, who, who written letters, who, who wrote letters complaining, you know, the thing about these blacks is that they really won't work unless you're forcing them to. What the fuck is wrong with them? Like, with this incredulity and, and, and horror? Like, we're giving you food and shelter. And it's like, well, yeah, but if you were getting food and shelter too, right, and you were working in some way towards our common survival too, and we were all together, then they probably wouldn't uh, resist working, but they also wouldn't be having to do what you're making them do. 
And of course, this is all you know. This this is this is the reason talking about this stuff is the reason that Marx didn't like trying to sketch out visions of what socialism would look like, because it necessitates. It requires like like actual you know the end state that people are or not even I don't mean the end state but I mean the 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 post transition state that people imagine in their heads. It is. And, and therefore, the, the broader goals and the broader projects that we have to express and live and try to move towards now in the here and around, in the here and now in this moment, necessitate an essentially a collective phase shift in human consciousness. And, I'm, and that's not like, that's not hippie bullshit. We've already had phase shifts in human consciousness. The creation of the modern liberal subject is a phase shift. That happened. Like, if you've gotten a bunch of uh, medieval motherfuckers sit around in the castle in, in Reims or something and say, hey, what's, what, like, imagine this system collapses and what comes next, uh, or, or, or no, not even collapses. Like, feudalism, you know what, this thing's bad, why don't we get a new one? They, they wouldn't do it, and they never were able to do it because, you know, you need to have a liberal subject for that kind of social uh, relationship to even exist to generate that kind of... Uh, discourse, but imagining it could, just assuming it could, they wouldn't have been able to get anywhere near where we are because it would have required them to imagine people acting towards each other in a fundamentally alien way. It would have required them act, imagining people acting towards each other as strangers, which they could not do. Now, of course, there are strangers in the medieval world, you know, the Saracen and, 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 the, and the heathens or whatever, but within Christendom, and certainly within like the the community, the idea that that you could walk out your door and everybody you saw in a day were people who you did not know, and I don't mean know just in the sense of recognize. I mean the sense of have an ex, a actual social embedded relationship with. They couldn't have imagined that. They couldn't imagine living like that. And it's like, well, we live that way because we, because the very order we live in has generated a, a, a shifted conception of the self in relationship to others than the, in, than the medieval subject had. And post-transition socialism would require a similarly um, shifted perception of others. A, a re-socialized conception of the self, where you have regained the social embeddedness of pre-capitalist society, but within a cosmopolitan framework where it doesn't have to be somebody who you've dug turnips next to your whole life or somebody who goes to the same cathedral that spent 300 years being built or that fights in the same crusade everybody maybe not as deeply as you know as deeply but as as um, influential towards one's like ideas of loneliness and, and fulfillment and existential uh, um, satisfaction similar But that phase shift only comes with uh, with a change, with a revolution. Of what type? I have no idea. I wish I could tell you. And I believe someone says I feel like this is a thing that anarchists miss, and abs that's absolutely it. The anarchist assumes an inviolable liberal subjectivity that will persist into their anarchist their anarchist society that they are imagining moving towards and that will only reproduce liberalism can only produce capitalism because in the absence of social bonds we are all out for ourselves we are all homo economicus and we are all going to seek to benefit from the surplus of labor that we did not participate in because we do not feel the Injustice of that because it's not happening to us. And now someone might say, well, there are anarchists who do take this into consideration, and it's like, maybe. But my observation of anarchism in practice and as a tradition suggests the otherwise. I saw Mank. I watched Mank. Most of all, I just don't know why it was... I, I mean, I know why it was made. It was a screenplay that David Fincher's dad wrote 40 years ago and he's been trying to make ever since and which 100% only exists because Netflix is at the point where they're going to give money to any big name director who has anything that they want to make. That's why they gave 
Scorsese $500 million to do the three hour, three and a half hour old age home digital uh, de-aging movie, which I think is brilliant as a Brechtian like masterpiece of alienation. But for, the very, for that very reason, it never would have been financed by a regular studio at that fucking rate. It might have, but it would have had to have been one of those deals where like Scorsese goes in basically lying to them, and then they just give them more money over time until they're pot committed, which is essentially, I think, what happened with the fucking Zyder, Snyder cut, which w, Warner Brothers thought, oh, great, we'll just we'll get a few more uh, eye, eyeballs off out of these pigs by just taking our old crap and putting a new label on it. But it turns out it needed work, and once Snyder got in there, he started asking for stuff, and before they knew it, they'd thrown another, like, $100 million onto the fucking fire, and now that thing has cost, like, $500 million. That's because... But, um, he, he basically tricked them. And Scorsese would have had to trick people into letting him make The Irishman at a regular studio. And I don't think any studio signing off on this self-conscious, like, black and white, fake 40s movie about this making of Citizen Kane. Uh, and he's only making it because his dad wrote the screenplay. My Pacino Hoff impression? You fucking father! Fucking insure the fucking local! Not very good. I am very excited for the Snyder Cut. I will watch it for sure. Uh, and yeah, I'm fine with them doing that, but sometimes you wonder if they should have stayed in the holster. I just, there's something deeply indulgent about it. Like, David Fincher's dad, and thanks for reminding us, by the way, that at this point, all these people, even the good directors, even the good directors are just rich kids. Everybody is just somebody's kid who decided to take a flyer on a career in the arts. Everybody in, in Hollywood at this point is like Marie Antoinette flouncing about in her fake peasant village at Versailles. So thank you for reminding me of that. Uh, and and even if it's like, oh, he wasn't rich, it's like, okay, his dad had a fucking screenplay for 40 years. He was clearly in the business. And that's more than most people can say. Um, and also, it's just... It's, like, I remember people saying it's about, it's about Mankiewicz's fight for uh, recognition. First of all, no, it isn't. He has one scene where he argues with Orson Welles about whether he should get credit. At the end of it, she says, fine, I'll give you credit. He gets the Oscar. What's the grievance? What is the grievance that drove this? And apparently it's a Pauline Kale essay. It just all feels very crankish. Although I will say the stuff about, uh, you know, Epic and the 34 Sinclair campaign was interesting. But I think there's a bunch of more interesting ways it could have been presented. And I do think it was funny that uh, Bill Nye played uh, up in Sinclair. That's actually pretty. That's pretty. That's pretty good. So you know, it was all right. I'd say I'm gonna. I haven't done it on Letterbox yet. I'll probably give it three and a half. Three and a half is my courtesy number, where it's like I recognize the craft. I'm not gonna poo-poo it. I see some things I enjoyed. I liked. I very much enjoyed Charles Dance's William Randolph Hearst. He sort of had the hollow like, slack look that he had. It was pretty eerie. Uh, and and uh, Oldman was really good. So, and, there's, and I, like, I liked all the Upton Sinclair parts, but, eh, so, three and a half. Ha! I have to rewatch Videodrome. Someone's asking about Videodrome. I haven't seen it in a long time. I do enjoy, remember enjoying it. I like Cronenberg, of course. And James Woods is actually one of my favorite actors. And it certainly seems prophetic. We're, we're, we're living in some new flesh, that's for sure. We are living the hell out of some new flesh. Uh, if you like your flesh, uh, you can keep it. Uh, let me be clear. 
I love that Biden, that Obama is doing his media tour now. It's fantastic. He's, he's, I love it most of all because he is confirming everything I've, uh, we've been saying about him. Uh, and specifically the shit about how he does not view himself as a figure who wielded power. He never imagined himself to have been in the same room as power. His job was to experience power on behalf of a grateful nation that he could then explain power to. He could go to the mountaintop and like look at the bush, and he, like a kind of a Moses type figure, where, where, where the burning bush is just the grinding gears of capitalism. Barfsack Okrumbo. You know, I've been thinking about his, about my, one of my, I mean, Barfsack Okrumbo is my favorite name for him, but one, another name I really like is the Obungler. And the thing about the Obungler is that, I don't know if it's accurate, because I really don't know if you can say that he bungled anything. Because if you really got him strapped to a chair and, like, hit him with sodium pentothal, how much would he really want to have gone differently at the expense of doing different things? Like, that's the thing. It can't just be, oh, it would have been nice if uh, Mitch McConnell had uh, been more uh, respectful or whatever. No. What would you have been willing to do in exchange for what different outcome? What can you look back on and say, oh, that was a mistake? I honestly don't think he would have any because I think that he is so deeply narcissistic and so fully convinced, so effused to his conception of himself, not just as like an empathic person, but also as an intellect, as someone who has looked into the fiery furnaces of capitalism and has been seared by them to the level of like deep knowledge of the universal truths. And as such, I think his commitment to himself as passive and to all decisions made within the halls of power as predetermined and out of his hands. I think he very well might look back and go, yeah, I didn't bungle anything. And if he doesn't think he bungled anything, I don't know if he, you could be said that he bungled anything. Because if he wasn't working on behalf of some broadly construed American public, he wasn't trying to do anything for anybody but himself. He wasn't trying to do anything except get himself a Netflix deal and get himself a fucking uh, $500 million to write 3,000 page book that every fucking tedious uh, uh, person with a, a home cappuccino machine is going to read and, and give to each other for Christmas. He might think he bungled, he might have bungled, but if that's not what he was working for, if that's not he, what his goal was, then he succeeded on his own terms. So kudos, sir. Now, you might say the one thing he might have bungled, and I see someone pointed it out in the chat, and yes, that's a good one, is keeping Biden out of the box on behalf of Hillary in 2016. Although, once again, I think if he sat down, he would say some bullshit to himself like, well, uh, Hillary, uh, at that point, uh, she had a robust enough team, and blah, blah, blah. She, he had, she had uh, people... The DLC, DNC, who were going to support her, and uh, if Biden had uh, stepped in, it would have split the establishment, and uh, Bernie would have gotten the nomination and lost to Trump, uh, even worse. Or not lost to Trump, which to them also a disastrous outcome. So he's probably got something in his own fucking pot, in his in his head to tell him that that was not a bungle. That's one of the beauties of being that kind of guy is that. That Olympian remove and that and that and that isolation of intellect into this crackpot realist framework, where uh, I have completely accepted the structure, even though I'm one of the most powerful people within any global order, you know, to to provide direction for the for for the direction for for this thing. Oh, he might. Uh, you know what? No, never mind. There's one thing. He, no. I was thinking, did he, would he have said he wished he wouldn't have said anything about, uh, about Skip Gates' cop being stupid? 
he probably would have said, yeah, that was stupid. But then again, he's probably very proud of the beer summit. He did write about it in the book. I mean, he really didn't have to mention the beer summit more than like a page. I don't know, but, or honestly, like a line. I mean, he talked about it significantly. So maybe he'd be like, oh, it gave us an opportunity to uh, bring some serious questions to uh, the public. I think he would definitely probably, he would definitely say he shouldn't have said anything about like uh, Kanye when he called him a jackass. They'd probably be like, oh, that was beneath me. Or that he shouldn't have worn a tan suit that one time. <coughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, it feels like there's like an intellectual battle even about like not whether or not Barack Obama sucks, but how he, his, the nature of his suckiness, the nature of his badness. And I think he has to be viewed not as misguided, not as even treacherous really, uh, so much as blank, so much as a empty vessel, uh, one of those Hegelian figures who emerges to embody the time, to embody the emptiness of the time, to embody the emptiness of life in 20, late 20th century and 21st century America, uh, a, a life where all values are reduced to market values, where the self is imposed, composed entirely of just a sluice of base desires, self-generated by a machinery of, of, uh, of misery and oppression, trying to soothe its own wounds. And that the only measure of a person can be their success within that system at expressing themselves. If we are all alone, we are all to die and be forgotten, then the only thing we can do is try to be remembered. And so the most ambitious of us, the smartest of us, will endeavor to be remembered, to be able to build fucking monuments to themselves to acquire fame and more importantly money to consecrate their image and blazon it across space and time and into that breach people are going to step who have that combination of ability and will uh, essentially the ability to at a basic level delude themselves into assimilating the ethics of this degraded, inhuman moment onto their very species being. And so they are able to move, motivate themselves the way that I have said, like, uh, revolutionaries have to motivate themselves from within, like that John Brown drive, that connection tissue between himself and every other person that meant that he felt the pain of others to such an extent that he was driven and focused towards the goal of ending that oppression because he felt it. The figures who rise in the current moment, like Obama, are ones who have been able to psychologically separate themselves so completely from every other person in the world that they can self-motivate in one direction, as opposed to the rest of us poor schmucks who can only ever somewhat separate that connection. And that means that our pursuits of success within the system are undermined at every point. We are either too distracted by carnality or uh, our connection to other people leave us paralyzed. How can, how can I get a job at this company knowing what they do? How can I do X, Y, and Z job knowing what it does? How can I do X, Y, or Z menial job knowing how, how much it uh, leaves me miserable? Instead, uh, the fully uh, possessed, I guess, the fully possessed figure like an Obama and Trump are able to, to unify themselves and put all of their energy 
into a spiritual pursuit of narcissism, which eludes most people. But the more successful of us, at least the ones who have to work in some way for their own success and can't just sit on piles of money, the ones who have to do something. And Obama, I would say, certainly uh, more than Trump, although honestly, Trump too, because if Trump had just wanted to be rich, he could have just sat on money forever. It was he wanted to be famous. And being a mid-tier developer in New York in the 70s is not an, a great way to get famous. You have to work at it, and he did. Obama, farther from power and far from the public eye, had to work even harder. Well, Obama's smarter than Trump is. But they're both driven by the same dynamo of, of, of religious narcissism, of, 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 of self-worship, which is what we're all supposed to be being driven towards. And the thing about that is that, you know, we are a monotheistic world. There can be only one. And that's why uh, monopolization and accumulation are the drive of capitalism and will eventually consume all humanity unless that, that spell is broken, unless that, so, that engine driving us in that direction is broken. So Obama set to the point of, of becoming a world historical figure from a young age. And he was very, very good at it. He's, he is very smart. But that's because he's worshiping his own self fully. He is a, he is an, a mystic, basically, as is Trump. And that is why they embody the, the, the emergent, um, that's why they embody now the, the um, social dialectic between Democrats and Republicans, the two Americas, who are now at, at, at war with one another, that were born out of the, the collapse of 2008 and the subsequent bipartisan non-recovery that said, okay, the economy just liquefied. Instead of everything building back together, we're just going to leave it as this big pool of money that we're just going to dump into it and let the richest here get more of it and, and pour money down their bucket and then allow them to use their market share and their relative uh, um, bargaining position vis-a-vis -a, -vis a further immiserated working class to fully pauperize people into techno-surfs, which is the whole app economy, which is basically the entirety of job growth since 2008. That was a bipartisan uh, 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 job, and they carried that shit out to the T. And out of that, out of this hypercharged, individualized, spectacleized society, uh, to embody one uh, way of getting ahead within that system, one way of successfully worshiping God, one way of becoming the God that you know you need to be, is Obama's. And Obama's is, follow the rules. That's basically the argument. Here are the rules as set up, and now those rules are liberal, right? Because of the need to have a uh, a system of um, <clears throat> what amounts to etiquette to allow the market to function. Like the market needs etiquette because everybody's a stranger and 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 everybody uh, has to have ha is approaching each other from a position of alienation, and so the same way you have to shake hands, tip your cap to a stranger, you have to embody certain values, and those values are inculcated in college. And you learn them, and then you apply them to the world. And Obama showed you, if that is what you're captured by, if that vision of self-worship is what you're powered by, that shows you the way. Trump is, break the rules. Trump is, if you want to become God, if you want to become the most famous person on earth, therefore a God for all of time after that, uh, you just be a fucking asshole until there's nothing anyone else can look at but you. And there's nothing anyone else can hear but your voice. Now the thing about that is that that's a tough one if you don't already have a lot of money or social position or attention to begin with. And that is why that one is not as appealing to people who are less demographically positioned that way. And it is appealing to that cotier of like baby boomer uh, white people who are sitting on all the remaining wealth really we have domestically in this country and see that, and it's certainly, especially after seeing eight years of this one version that they can't do. They're too old, man. They're too set in their ways. They can't curtsy like that. They can't extend their pinky fingers. They can't remember not to say that about those people. 
Trump says fuck that. And then those get to be the two visions of, of godhood that we all battle around. And the, that working class movement towards Trump, or at least a Trump-influenced Republican Party, because there's no way, whoever they nominate now, I have no idea what's coming after Trump. It's hard to imagine him not wanting to run for re-election, spend the next four years just doing what he's been doing, because he likes the running around the country part, and he can still do that for the next four years, and then just run again. I think he honestly, at this point, might do it, because it'll be all the parts he does enjoy, which is campaigning with nothing else, and then, because he has a dog brain and doesn't remember anything and has no object permanence, he'll forgot how much he hated actually being president. And he'll drive himself back. But one way or another, even if he drops dead of COVID tomorrow, which would be hilarious, of course, the, the party is now the alternative to this follow-the-rules uh, Obama party. And uh, a lot of those working-class people of color they're not going to find themselves any more able to f imagine themselves succeeding by following the rules as uh, any of the beautiful voters who support Trump. But of course, in reality, nobody gets to be God. Nobody gets to do it. Nobody gets to be fully actualized uh, narcissistic beings. Instead, what they get is the chance to see that desire just dissolve before their eyes and be replaced with nothing. With no social balm, no no soothingness, no soup, no no sucker to come in the form of love of others. Just further immiseration and, and precarity more than anything. The sense of always not going up but falling down. Because the conditions of that precarity are not negotiable, they're not, nobody is, nobody uh, in power is signing off on uh, any redistribution of power or money away from the current polls that it's being pulled towards. Sorry. All you can do is find that other tribe with that other god and kill it. Because it's the reason that the crops won't grow. We do not need AMPRIM. AMPRIM is not the answer. AMPRIM turns back into capitalism. And because, I mean, if, you're, because if you don't have that social conception I was talking about, thing where your self, sense of self-identity is composed psychologically of a genuine felt relationship to other people beyond yourself, and specifically beyond even the people you know personally, and people that you even outside of it, like a, a cultural context with, Without that, tribal breakdown, primitive breakdown, will result again in a conflict over resources. And conflict over resources is the driver of social alienation. And you can't say, well, we'll all get to that point and then just break back up. You'll lose it over time. It has to be sustained technologically. That social connection has to be maintained technologically. Drainage. Drain dry. So sorry. I drink your white cloth. Our phase shifts ultimately spiritual. Indeed, a spiritual revolution. But as I've said before, that's not crazy. That's not made up. It's happened before. Uh, the Europe going from uh, Europe going from pagan to Christian—that's a spiritual revolution. 
the uh, medieval uh, socially embedded corporate sense of self being turned into liberal um, individualism, that is a spiritual revolution. It's the, it's, it's, it's the necessary byproduct of a change in material relationships. You have a situation where material relationships are moving in one direction, and as the ferment within them and the conflict within them moves them in another, if you get, if you get to that socialism, barbarism inflection point, say, within our system that is you know, moving towards a crisis, final crisis, one time, maybe not now, maybe not in 100 years, but it, it is, uh, if it breaks towards... Um, if it breaks towards socialism, that will mean a change of material relationship that will, over time, change people's sense of self because of it, it because of the change to their uh, social relations to one another. Their, I mean, sorry, their material relations to one another. And once enough people have had their and enough like gen, enough kids have been born into new social relationships that generate new spiritual concepts, if enough people have those experiences, if enough people have those experiences due to their material conditions having changed, and the change keeps moving in the same direction, just like what happened with the emergence of the liberal identity, eventually you get a situation, an inflection point of consciousness where people are experiencing the life, experiencing life in a different spiritual context but it comes after changing material conditions because if we're going to make socialism it'll be because a bunch of people who are alienated who do not live that life who do not have a spiritualized sense who are living every day as like a raw nub working together enough to push things in a direction but they're still going to be separated. But it will be through the act of working together and seeing uh, results from the work that that uh, those spiritual changes happen on an individual basis. Some people have like large scale like conversion experiences. Other people have just a change, a gradual change in their 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 emotional palate as it relates to other people, and then. The relationship between people motivated by that changing spiritual sense and their application of themselves to the wheel of material history, those things reinforce each other until you get another punctuated, a punctuation, an inflection of spiritual change. Somebody says, uh, uh, Medicare for All comes to the uh, America. How? I have no fucking idea. I have precisely zero idea. The political force that moves us even in that direction is one that is, if it exists now, it is in a uh, absolutely protean state. And it is as absurd for me to imagine how we get to Medicare for All as it was for Marx to sketch out what socialism would look like after the revolutions of 1848. Not even to say that it's that necessarily far away uh, in time, but that it is that far away in event, in incident, in increasingly unpredictable random emergence of response to changing conditions. I mean, hell, we might never get Medicare for all. We might go straight to uh, just national health care, like doctors are employees of the state, which honestly is the superior system and the more socialist system. But I understand why it's not what people push for, and it shouldn't be at the political level right now. But we very well might get there, considering how, how things, how how the confrontation with capital, what shape it takes. And I don't know what shape it's going to take. I have suspicions. I have guesses. I think it's probably not going to come from the Democrats. It's probably going to come from a, diff a third party that emerges and sort of 
breaks up the duopoly and replaces one of the two parties, uh, as happened in the 1850s. But beyond that, I don't know. Biden's COVID plan is awesome. It's wonderful. It's definitely going to work is the thing I love most about it. No money for anybody. Keep everything open. M make Wear masks, which people are already doing, by the way. Basically what? Is the, I mean, he's not even saying they want to do a mandate. He's just saying, I'm going to ask everybody to do it, which they've already done. Everyone every day tells you to wear the goddamn mask. And most people do wear the mask, even the fucking Republicans, because it's like required indoors. And people just sort of like, okay, fine, I'll do it. Even Republicans mostly do it. Like, only the most hardcore ones see it as a culture war symbol at the demand and refuse to fucking wear a mask. So unless you're talking about requiring it, which would get, create almost overnight a bunch of posse comitatus revolutions of like Hicks in uh, Hick Sheriff Department saying that they're not going to enforce it. And then what are you going to do? You're going to go to war? No, you're just going to back down. So nothing accomplished. And then the other one, 100 million shots in the 100 days. Well, there's 325 million people. So good job. One. Two. Yes. I, yeah, right. I'm sorry. I'll believe it when I see it for a million ways. Even if everybody in America was dying to get the fucking thing and had no qualms about it whatsoever, the idea that we have the capacity to administer something like that on that scale, in that time frame, to me, was absurd. But the only way you can understand the Democrats' position right now is how can we get back to normal before we have to give people more money? Because they do know that at some and the Republicans honestly know too, at some point they are going to have to give people more money. Not necessarily uh, uh, like the $1,200 again, but there's going to have to be a stabilizing injection of capital at the demand side, or our consumer-based economy will collapse. And they know that. But they're also, with this, all these vaccines coming online now, they're also hoping, the same way at the beginning of the thing, everybody was essentially saying, no, we're not going to shut down because maybe it solves itself. Maybe it falls away. Maybe the transmission doesn't jump, and maybe they track and trace a guy and it gets contained. Maybe they drop the Moab on Cedar Creek and uh, it doesn't spread and we don't have to worry about it. The same way they were doing that for a while, that's one of the big reasons that everything went to hell so quick. Right now, they're like, how far, like just get some vaccines in people. Maybe we can just get this thing kickstarted without having to give people more money. And so right now I think Biden and the whole, both parties are in that wait and see thing, that suspended animation of like negotiating, not negotiating, giving the illusion of forward momentum just to buy time for a miracle in the form of a flawlessly carried out and executed uh, vaccination campaign that reaches herd immunity within 40 days or whatever the fuck. My guess is that they will, uh, they will, they will give in before that. But I, I honestly have no faith that they won't push it way too far, trying to wait it out. see a tweet today that said, and I thought it was actually pretty brilliant. Uh, I gotta give credit. Actually, I should give credit because it's a really good idea, is that uh, the only way to deal with the fact that we have these two incommensurate worldviews with the Democrats and Republicans so little trust between these two factions 
the only way you could guarantee a very quick uh, uh, ascension to a vaccine protocol is if you took the two vaccines, because there's two, there's a Moderna one and a Pfizer one, and had branded culturally one of them as the Democrat vaccine, and then branded another one culturally as the Republican vaccine, and had the two media apparatuses talk about them, not just in terms of saying ours is good, but more importantly, saying that the other one was terrible. And the other one was going to make you either like, what the Democrats can say, oh, it's going to make you racist. Or and Democrats can say, oh, it's going to make you trans. And that, you, and, that and more importantly, that getting the, the one that the other ones don't like, uh, it owns them and makes them unhappy. And, and it would be self-generating. Like, anything from outside, it wouldn't work. It has to contain both. But uh, it, it's, it's too, way too smart. Zero chance we do it. We are far too dumb. All right, I'm going to get off in a second, but I want to I credit this guy because I really thought that was a smart, uh, smart idea. It would require more, more cooperation than, uh, and, and coherence than our government is capable of, of undertaking because the lumpen uh, idiocy that has overcome our billionaire class has predictably also totally taken over our, our political class. So that not only like, can capital not, not only is government not able to like, coordinate capital uh, because capital has so much influence now that it, it just overawes uh, the state's managerial uh, and coordinating capacities, the people who could fight that within government are similarly captured by self-interest. I mean, my God, Nancy Pelosi just admitted yes, uh, the other day that they fucking refused a massive amount of money, trillions of dollars, and, and another round of fucking checks to people uh, before the election because they didn't want Trump, Trump to win. That is what they call a perverse incentive. Uh, John Asconis. Thank you. Shout out to John Asconis. That was very, very smart. I'm going to read it. I'm just going to read this thread because it's really good. The solution to vaccination under hyperpartisanship is so obvious and cynical that it will never be done. We have two very similar vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna. If you want to reach herd immunity fast, you make one the Lib vaccine and one the Vaga vaccine. Give the new, give the, get the new Biden administration to endorse the Moderna vaccine as the best one for science and experts. Have Gates and Soros team up to send out the distribution. Have Gal Gadot lead a celebrity music video. Having all of the soy people, every one of the Avengers getting the fucking Moderna vaccine. You spread rumors that Trump is holding millions of Pfizer stock and mushed, rushed it through FDA approval. You get Gavin Newsom to ban Pfizer in California. Uh, have like, um, yeah, uh, have a bunch of like viral tweets about like Pfizer was a Nazi company or something. Uh, and then you have Trump go on Hannity and take. Uh, and they and they take the Pfizer's vaccine. They take it together, and then you have the booths at the rallies, and everyone would just do it. And uh, and I just want to read these last ones because this was a very astute point. Uh, this sounds crazy, but consider that this is exactly what happened with the coronavirus pandemic itself from February on, with both sides arms racing to maximally oppose whatever the other side happened to support. That's how you go from some tentative scientific support for hydrochloroquine and a bit of Trump boosterism to MSNBC and the New York Times writing hit pieces on it and talk show hosts joking about it while Fox News practically begins selling it on their website and the admin making it a miracle cure. That's the big part of it, the way that it reinforces each other. I remember the hydrochloroquine story. It was like, I mean, liberals were always saying, well, we have to say this because people are dying. Nobody's like one idiot drank like a, a goldfish cleaner or something. 
there was no need for everybody to go all in on horrible hydrochloroquine ones. They were driven that way by their need to define themselves in opposition to Trump. And they were filtered down all the way to everybody, including on the left, which is supposed to be critical of this sort of hive mind. And, on the, and then at the same time, hydrochloroquine became the miracle cure on the right. And in not taking it was cuck. And yeah, like that's, that's, that's the thing you put in your body. Why wouldn't that work with a vaccine? All right, so I'm going to leave you guys and gals with a quote, a tweet that um, I retweeted today that really reminded me that the ideal, and I don't know, I'm not really joking, is that if Bernie had won the nomination somehow, through the grace of God, uh, that my ideal vice president for him honestly might have been Marianne Williamson. And, and I feel like, I feel that now more than I did even at the time. And I was very interested in, in Marianne at the time, just because I feel like she is one of the very few pe figures in public life who articulates in any way, even if it's from the point of view of like West Coast uh, New Age bullshit, the, the reality of, um, of our spiritual lack and she had a tweet today that I thought really, really reminded me that we're on the same wavelength. Caterpillars disintegrate into a soup of imaginal cells out of which emerges a butterfly. That's where the world is now. One way of being is disintegrating. People are imagining new ways of doing and thinking about things relating to self and others. It won't stay soup for long. And of course, that's not necessarily a good thing. Gramsci said, you know, the old world is dying, the new world is yet to be born, this is the time of monsters, but it's also the time of miracles. It is a, it is a liquefied, uh, it's liquefied uh, earth. Like, you know how during an earthquake, it moves so fast that the fucking ground itself turns into, it has the viscosity of liquid? We're there. And... What comes out of that is up to us, as terrifying as that is to think about, and as hopeless as it might make you think when you consider how far all of us are from God, in a real sense, from love, we're also all we have and the only thing that could do it. And we're here. And that's fucking something. Bye-bye.